Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Coming at you today, Chris and Daniel Torridan. The great Daniel Torridan is, is coming back on the podcast to say hello all the way from hello. Down Under. Down Under. Yeah, and I'm that's, in Australia now, not, uh, not the UK anymore. No, and that's Queensland? Queensland, yeah, the uh, Sunshine State. So I just returned from vacation with the family uh, from Florida, which is the Sunshine State. Um, so I have a little a little suntan here today, um, but um, but I haven't had much in terms of regular uh, podcast content because I've been away with the family and uh, was really hoping you and I could squeeze one in. And I feel really um, guilty that we haven't been able to do that for some time. So I'm glad that you were able to make the time bright and early. It's 10, 10 a.m., right? It is, yes. Well, yeah, not not too early, is it? 10 a.m., but it's Sunday morning here. What is it there? Is it Sunday evening? Saturday evening. Saturday evening. Yes. It's cool. yesterday here, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> have you had your breakfast? Uh, I've, I have. I've got a uh, cup of tea, and I've had a uh, hot cross bun. Now, for some reason, your audio's gone. Uh, oh, am I there still there? There it is. Yep, there it is. It's probably because I put the mug in front of the uh, Ah, microphone. Yeah. I've had a uh, hot cross bun this morning. All right. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Without the cross on. Are you still waiting for... Well, for some reason, like, they have crosses on during the Easter period, and then as soon as Easter's over, they take all the crosses off the buns, don't they? (laughs) So, hot cross buns, I want you to know that in the United States is a children's rhyme it, it it doesn't oh. refer it doesn't refer to any food that we're familiar with so hot cross buns is is like a it's like a, a relic so i don't actually know what that means this is a uh, this is a hot cross bun let's see handy it let's to see me. it handy to me my my beautiful assistant that's a hot uh, cross bun you know, gotcha. yes are. but during easter they have like a uh, like a cross on there Interesting. Yeah. Hey, Ma- Mariella, good morning. Good morning. I'll, I will refrain from being in front of the camera. Oh, that's okay. Sunday morning. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> so I'm dying to hear about uh, your transition there. I was saying before we started recording that your hair is getting long. It is. Yeah, I'm becoming a hippie. You're like some kind of surfer now? Surfer dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, be careful. I, I hear they have uh, 
tiny jellyfish in Australia that will kill you. Oh, yeah. You know about and those. Snake, and snakes and uh, spiders and cockroaches. Cockroaches <laughs> like this size. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. And they fly as well. Whoa. Have you had any run-ins with them in the shower or anything crazy? I've had a, I've had a run-in with one in the, uh, in the garage. Um, Mariella said, oh, don't come in the garage. There's a cockroach. And I was like, oh, I saw it. Come and have a look at it, yeah? And yes. Massive, massive thing on the wall. Wow. And uh, she got some bug spray to get rid of it. And I thought she was just going to spray the bug spray and it would, like, drop to the floor. But she sprayed this bug spray and this, this thing like flew at us. <laughs> oh, uh, well, for, for our American audience, I'll say that garage is probably garage. Garage. Yes, yes, yes. And we have, um, we have little geckos. Yes. Little tiny geckos. And we're, uh, we're okay with them because they're bugs. So, yes. Yeah, do we they keep get, the geckos. Do they get in the house, the geckos? They do. Yeah, they yeah. do, yeah. You just let yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got little geckos on the wall and the windows, and yeah, nice. Yeah. Oh man, I'm 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 really happy to talk to you, Daniel. I, I'll be honest with you. It's um it's eight p.m. here. We had a birthday party today with the kids, and uh, oh cool. I had a few drinks, and then we had a bonfire in our front yard. This is strange. I know front yard doesn't seem like the place for a bonfire, but we have a little fire pit, and in my front yard we have a a view of the Lake Erie. And nice. every and everybody on my street uses their front yard the way that we traditionally would use a backyard for, mm-hmm. like your, like your garden or where you would you would you know hang out and maybe have yeah. a fire. So we did that in my front yard and we did roasted marshmallows with the girls. So I might be a teensy bit tipsy. No, nah, that's okay. <laughs> but I listen. I'll be um I'll be honest with you. I missed you, man. Oh, I've missed you, buddy. <laughs> nice nice so it's been uh, um it's been a couple of months i think it, it has been and i feel re- i feel really bad about that oh when i was in uh when i was in florida i was at disney with the kids and we met a mm-hmm. um a fella from uh england he was from no- the northern suburbs of london somewhere and he mm-hmm. reminded me he reminded me of you <laughs> oh yeah yeah so i was like we gotta we gotta get on here I've got a doppelganger out there. Yep, yep. He had a daughter about my daughter's age. They were they were getting along really well. Oh, brilliant! Has so your daughter me. recovered? Has your daughter recovered well? Because she thank wasn't, you. She wasn't yeah. well the last time I spoke to. Yeah, you. yeah. Thank you for asking. So, both of the girls had pneumonia or had the flu rather, and one of them got pneumonia, and she yeah she's totally recovered. So she's good. She's right as rain. Yep. Thank you. Brilliant. And I want to, I want to hear all about Australia. So you've been there a little while now. I think you're still waiting on all of your things. Yeah, at the moment, all my uh, proper podcasting stuff, all my mixing decks and uh, my guitar and my keyboard and all those sort of things are on a uh, they're on a container ship at the moment. Where are they? And, they're, in the, they're in the Philippines. Where are they? Well, I thought I thought it was going to go from the UK round round the coast of Africa. Mm-hmm. And then kind of up down through the uh, Suez Canal, kind yeah. of around the top of Egypt and down the Suez Canal, and pop out at the bottom in in Aus- in Australia. But it's um, 
it's gone round the coast of Africa, and it's gone. It's gone up past Thailand uh, and China, and at the moment, all my stuff's somewhere near North Korea. <laughs> oh man! Like, oh god! <laughs> now, is, that, is that is that is that more than just your podcast equipment? Is that clothes and and you know all your things? Yeah, everything. My clothes, my books, um, bits of furniture, all sorts of things. Yeah, man. Mariella is a. I said, are you just wearing Mary Ella's underwear? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I don't yeah, think the don't JWs would, 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 uh, would agree with that. Yeah, don't tell anyone. <laughs> so tell me, yeah. man, how was how it? How is it? How are you settling in? What's been brilliant. what's been surprising to you? Anything? Yeah, brilliant. It's, it's the best decision I ever made. Not least of all because uh, Mary Ella's here, but just the. Um, just a way of life. It's just really, really relaxed where we are. We're kind of in a relatively rural area, so yep. um, you know we're we're overlooking a paddock with uh, cows in it, and uh, it's it's just absolutely lovely. Um, really, I feel really at peace for the first time in my life. What do you attribute that to? Um, Mariella. <laughs> and uh, whose name is actually Mariella? Mariella. Yeah, yeah, I've been saying it wrong. <laughs> well, I've been saying it wrong. Yeah, I say it wrong as well. Um, and I think sort of mentally, I think moving that distance as well. You know, it's ten and a half thousand miles away. Some of the things that maybe from my past life were causing me anxiety. It sort of, it feels like mentally as if it's just, it's so far away now, you know? Yeah, Um, sure. Yeah. I think, I think, I think I'd I'd put a lot of it down to that. You know, it feels, it feels like I closed the door on a lot of things when I left. So you, you must have, you must have some mixed feelings about that. Um, Yes. Uh, yeah. From the point of view of um, like probably never seeing my dad or my children again. But uh, you've got to remember that because they were members of a religion that I'm no longer a member of, um, they were shunning me, completely cutting me off as if I was didn't exist. So that was always a bit kind of, it, it was like they were there, but they weren't accessible, if that makes sense. Sure. Whereas now it's like, even if they were accessible, I'm on the other side of the world. Right. <laughs> so right. mentally, it just kind of, it just sort of settles things a bit, if that makes sense. I don't know no, why, but that it just, it just. Well, listen, it makes perfect sense if, if they're nearby relatively and you don't have access to them, that, that's so much more painful than them being inaccessible physically and also inaccessible in general you know the night the nice thing was before i left as well i i I sent a few little uh emails out to people that i'd known over the years i sent one to my dad i sent one to my sister i sent one to a few a couple of witnesses that i used to know and i just said i'm moving the other side of the world you know this is is our last chance to kind of see each other you know before i go Yep. Um, I don't expect you'll probably get in touch, but if you want to, let me know. Um, and I did have, so I got a letter from my dad actually, 
Um, we did. My dad, mm, my dad, even though he's kind of born to shunning me, he wrote me a letter. Um, again, bit bit mixed feelings, really, because it, it was a letter that said, um, I'm happy that you're happy, that you've, you've found some happiness and peace. You know, I explained to him that I had a, had a new belief structure that I, that, that made sense to me. Um, and he said he was happy about that. And he said, uh, I don't think you're a bad man. I think bad things have happened to you. And I thought, well, that's nice. But then in the, same, in the same breath, he then went on to say, but because we don't believe the same, um, I can't have any contact with you, which I thought was a bit, bit odd. Um, my sister came to see me, which was nice. Very she nice. See me a couple of times before I went. Yeah, that was lovely. Uh, say goodbye properly and uh, uh, his name shall be nameless but even uh, one of the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses came to see me before I went nice under nice. the uh, under the cover of darkness <laughs> do you remember that uh, do you remember that in uh, in the Bible where Nicodemus went to see Jesus in the dark tell me the tell refresh my memory there was a guy in the um in the Sanhedrin, the uh, Jewish court, I believe his name was Nicodemus, one of the older men in Jerusalem. And um, he, uh, he, wanted to, he wanted to hear all about Jesus and what Jesus was up to because the Sanhedrin wanted to kill Jesus. But Nicodemus wasn't so, wasn't so sure uh, whether it was the right thing to do. So he snuck out under the cover of darkness and went and found Jesus in the middle of the night. And he actually did become a believer. Uh, I think it was Nicodemus that Jesus had the uh, conversation with about being born again. Mm. He said, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus said, well, how can somebody be born again? You can't go back inside your mother's womb. Right, yes. And yes. he said, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about being literally born again. I'm talking about being born again of the spirit. Um, yeah, so... Uh, it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes people, uh, I realise I've just gone and lightened myself to Jesus there, but there you go. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> some people like to uh, like to, to to kind of uh, give you support, but they don't like to do it openly. Yeah, I can understand. Um, They're a little bit scared about getting caught out. Yeah, yeah, that's a shame. But at least they did, right? At least they made contact with you. That's right. Yeah, I think that, I think that was really nice, actually. So, uh, and I got got to say goodbye to my oldest friend, Math. Math, yes. Podcast with, yeah. Yes. Got to say goodbye to him and a couple of other really good friends. So. Do you you expect you you you'll do any more podcasts with Math? Oh yeah. Okay. Definitely. Good. When my stuff arrives from North Korea. Yeah. <laughs> when it arrives from communist North Korea. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So um, nothing from your kids? No. That's a shame. No, nothing from my children or my dad, apart from that letter. So, well, um, gotta... I have. Uh, I want to. I'm, I'm going to be naughty if I may and plug it. I've, uh, yes. So I've just, I've just finished writing that, uh, publishing yes. that. Yes. That's that book that I told you I channeled back in 2006. And I've, I've got a, the first um, hard copy, which Mariella's going through and proofreading for me. 
and I've just I've just started uh, on this. Oh, hang on, believing the lie. Sorry, cognitive dissonance. It's my uh, life story plus to the cult that I was in and why it's not not the truth. And uh, it's worked out as 700 pages. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So you already read, you've already written 700 pages of book two? Yeah. So what happened is when I've done my podcasts in the, in the past, I've uh, also done transcripts for the mm. podcast. So I had most of it already in transcript form. Um, and then I've just kind of cut and pasted it all into a chronological order. Gotcha. Um, tidied it up a bit, made it read less like a podcast, more like a book. And uh, yeah, seven seven hundred pages. So I'm not sure wow. whether to do one book or two books. <laughs> well, listen, I books, I want to be one of the first people to to purchase a copy of I Am God. I want I want I want to purchase one okay. from you. So let me know how I can do that because I want to. Okay, you're, you're on. <laughs> you're on. So have you had any? Uh, have you had any? epiphanies recently well I've, I've i've been i've had some interesting things that i've done um i told you a little bit about my buddy kyle that i do the podcast with mm, where's he, he today he is he went to columbus which is two and a half hours south to visit old friends that's where we're from so he went down to visit old friends otherwise he would be here today with me uh, and I'm glad he's doing that because um, mm. the friend that he went to visit, he lived with for a while. He's one of my very best friends, and we haven't seen him in years. I haven't seen him in years, and I feel terrible about that. So he drove down two and a half hours to visit, and I think that's great. He'll, you know, they'll both be listening to this podcast at some point, and they'll they'll be nodding right now. So they're having a great time right now, uh, reconnecting. Hi, Kyle. And, hi, Kyle, and 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 Matthew, who who Daniel might call Math with like two Fs, I think. Uh, my math, it, my, my Matthew is uh, M-A-F. 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 All right. So Kyle's been, Kyle's been getting into Orthodox Christianity. Okay. And what's strange about this is that Kyle grew up very religious, maybe not dissimilar from you, only his religion was uh, the Nazarene denomination, which is a, a conservative evangelical uh, branch of like post um, Protestantism, mm -hmm. um, I think it was a. I think it's a uniquely American branch of Christianity, but I could be wrong. But it's a. Um, it's it, it, like the conservative version of these people. Like the women don't cut their hair and they don't wear jeans; they wear long skirts down to their ankles. So it's mm -hmm. like it's a pretty conservative branch of of the religion. Um, and he he in his teenage years pulled back from that, and um, mm -hmm. you know his parents were pretty pretty good about it. They were expecting him to be rebellious because that's the kind of guy he is. They didn't hold it against him. Nobody disowned him, but he didn't go to church. He didn't believe in God for a long time. And I don't know what changed. I honestly don't know what changed, but hmm. he, he started getting more into paganism for a while. He wanted to learn about the religion of his ancestors, which by the way, as an American, you may not you may not know this, but as an American, we, we don't have any connection to our, our ethnicity. So my family is from Germany and Switzerland, and I don't have any connection. I don't know what the music is like. I don't know what food they eat. I don't know the language. I don't know anything about it. 
And so Kyle's much like that. His family's from Scotland and England, and he doesn't know anything about them. So he started getting into paganism, Germanic paganism. He wanted to learn about what types of religious ideas they had and try to connect with his um, past, his his past somehow. Um, Kyle never knew his real dad. He was raised by basically his stepdad, but his only dad he's ever known, so it's more or less his dad. But he he always felt estranged from himself. He always felt like he didn't know who he was. And so mm. – he was he's been looking for that lately and it's it's this in combination with the changes in the culture right now um well there there's very little respect for religion anymore in the west especially in america i assume in europe and australia as well especially yeah. christianity very little respect for religious people um and this transgenderism and all sorts of things that are changing in the culture and it's made Kyle look for some kind of religious bedrock that he can attach himself to, that he, that resonates yep. with him. And somehow, because of the community he has on online, he's come to Orthodox Christianity. And he sees this as a tradition from, from the time of Jesus, from Jesus himself, and more mm. true to – Christianity than Catholicism and more true, more authentic than the religion he was, he was raised in. Now that that's, that's interesting. I, I was um, watching a, a video recently on YouTube about uh, Christianity and <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, a lot of people think that, you know, Christianity as it is now, uh, obviously the protestant churches is kind of how it how christianity was at the outset but this video was saying that there were actually christianity kind of arose in various different areas you had your you had your gnostic christians um you had your ethiopian christians which i think is where some of the, the orthodox um christianity comes from doesn't it the the ethiopian orthodox um church has their i think their bible has 83 books 81 books something like that yeah, yeah. um and it was only so catholic christianity was just christianity that was being practiced in rome that's all it was so so at the outset there were all these different kind of different types of christianity that grew up around the man jesus and they had sort of this similar, they had this one thread running through them that there was a man called Jesus that was God or was the son of God and could perform miracles and died and went to heaven. But they, they all sort of had those, those ideas. Um, but, you know, the Gnostic, I've not done a lot of reading of the Gnostic um, gospels and so on, but there are quite a lot of differences in Gnosticism to mainstream christianity but it's only it's only because catholicism became like the dom it was constantine wasn't it that that made uh christianity the the national religion for rome right and catholicism became the main stream form of christianity all these other versions of christianity the catholic church put them down so the reason re, the reason christianity today is not based on like say Ethiopian or the Orthodox or the the, the Gnosticism on mass, 
because the Catholic Church said, you know, they're rubbish and we're the only right ones. Exactly. I found I found that quite interesting, actually, because uh, you know, I suppose if you if you've got the majority vote, you can uh, dismiss everybody else, can't you? Right, right. And I think that that has a lot to do with them um, tying themselves to the political authority of Constantine and the Roman Empire. And then you yes, have the absolutely yeah, survival. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So I and I do know I don't know a great deal about the history, but I know that the Ethiopian Church and the Coptic Church in Egypt mm. are some, and this and the Church in Syria are some of mm -hmm. the oldest Christian churches uh, ever, and yeah. they have yeah, and more, they have more, more so than Rome, yeah, more so than Rome, and they do have yeah. scriptures that they re regard as holy that are not in the canon of the Catholic Bible or, or the King James Bible that you and I are familiar with. Yeah, because um, and it's interesting the King King James Bible. I mean the uh, the Catholic uh, version of the Bible has 70 something books, doesn't it? 71, 73. I can never remember. Yeah. And the Protestant, um, church, the church of England took, um, several of seven of those books out. I think it was. Yep. Um, so you've only got 66 now in the Protestant, in the Protestant Bible. Right. Right. Always amazes me as to who who gets to say which books should be in or not. That's a good question, and and also the fact that there was that there was a hundred years of Christianity before these books were even written down, let alone compiled. It was it was four hundred years into the religion before the Bible was compiled. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of room for um, error. And there's a lot, or, or shall I say bias? There's a lot of room for bias there. Sure. You know, you, uh, you, it, it seems to me that the, the churches that have more books are probably um, closer to the original than the ones that have trimmed it down. You know, it almost seems like uh, every time there's a new religion, uh, a new branch of Christianity, they chuck a few more books out. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the ones that I've read that I think are the most interesting that aren't in, that aren't in the canon are the book of Enoch which is an yep. old old testament book and the gospel of Thomas now that's yep. a that's a gnostic gospel and it was found in the coptic egyptian and um rediscovered but people argue about that because the because the gospel of Thomas is potentially the oldest gospel that there is mm. now some some Scholars say that it was written 200 AD, which would have made it, you know, 70, 80 years after the canonical gospels were written. Other other scholars say, no, 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 it, it dates to around 40 or 60 AD, which makes it earlier than the Gospel of Mark. It's the it, it potentially the earliest. And and here's the interesting thing about it is that when you look at the canonical gospels, they have all these passages that are basically word for word in in common between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so what they what they decided was that they must have copied from an older gospel, and they call that gospel the Q document. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I don't know why Q, but they call it the Q document, and they say that. If, if we ever find the Q document, that what it will be is a list of the sayings of Jesus, not a narrative. It's going to be a list of the sayings of Jesus. 
And the Gospel of Thomas is exactly that. No narrative right. story. It's a list mm. of the sayings of Jesus. Yep. And it is very interesting. That that's the gospel that says that says the kingdom of God is within you and without and outside of you. Mm-hmm. It says it says, lift up a stone and you will find God. Split a piece of wood and he is there. That's what the Gospel of Thomas says. That sounds very, um, very Eastern. <clears throat> Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Uh, actually, a book I've just downloaded recently uh, in my Kindle, which is a side-by-side uh, comparison of uh, Jesus' sayings with uh, Buddha. Ooh. Yeah. Just seeing if I can... Uh, can't find it. I'll uh, I'll have to find the uh, the name of it for you. But it's um, it's amazing how <clears throat> the Buddha's sayings, which were supposedly a lot earlier than Christ, uh, than Christ, very very similar. Some of them almost word for word. I'd be very interested to hear that. Yeah. Because mm. I I I have this I have this uh, kind of notion that. You know the uh, the Jesus narrative in the Gospels. It kind of brings you up to when Jesus was about eleven or twelve years old when he got lost at the temple that time. Mm-hmm. And then there's nothing between eleven or twelve years old to thirty. Right, great big great big gap in the middle. And of course, like boys back then, thirteen was kind of when you came of age, wasn't it? Thirteen. Right. Right. Um, I wonder whether, sort of in that gap, whether he did actually go to India. There are some stories of a man with a name very similar to Jesus in India during that period of time, whether he picked up a lot of his uh, kind of mystical sayings and so forth and then brought them back to uh, Israel and framed them within the religion at the time, which was obviously Judaism. Sure. No, I, I think that's very interesting. Issa, Issa is the name of that person Issa. who appears in Buddhist and Hindu. Yes, yes. yes. Mm. And you've got you've got things as well, like um, you know the the uh, magi, the, uh, the the wise men, the astrologers that travelled from the east to Jerusalem to see this child born king of the Jews. And you know why why would someone from the east travel? to Israel to see a, a king of a, a completely different nation. Um, I read somewhere recently that it, it, it could well be that they thought he was an incarnation of the Buddha. That's interesting. That might, that might have been a reason why they... So this actually ties into something that I want to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before I do, I want to tell you a little bit more about this Orthodox thing with Kyle because mm. yeah. because I went to church with him. So... He asked, well, I asked him if I could go with him because he was going to an, an Eastern Orthodox liturgy. Um, when you're dealing with Orthodoxy and you're dealing with Catholicism, there's a language there that I don't really understand because I wasn't raised with it. But but liturgy is something like mass. It's something like the Catholics would say mass, but mm-hmm. it, is the, it is the service, the traditional service, and it is much more structured than a 
Protestant or evangelical service where I don't know what you're accustomed to with the Jehovah's Witness Church, but I imagine it's similar. You you go into church, you have a s- hymns that you sing, and then you have a sermon, and you do communion maybe. I don't really know what the JWs are like, but that's kind of like what my church experience was like on Sundays. So yeah. the the preacher will choose what he wants to preach about. Every week he'll do whatever he whatever he wants to do. There's no structure to it. But in Catholicism and in Orthodoxy, there is a structure to it. It's predictable. What they're going to talk about is going to be the same every day. You know, it, it'll change. It's not going to be identical every day, but the calendar of, of the liturgy will be a very structured thing. Mm-hmm. The yeah. hymns are the, are structured. The the sermon section is is um, structured, and everything that's done is done in a very ritualistic way. So, mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting this when I go into this church. First of all, there are no pews when you walk in. Everybody stands. There are no sitting. Oh. You're standing. Okay. Wow. The the church is decorated from floor to ceiling with paintings of the of the apostles and Jesus and Mary and the saints there's this particular church was a whole panel of saints and it and Jesus was in the middle there's a dome in the in the top of the church and it's painted as well and there is a um candelabra chandelier hanging from the the dome and it's got pictures all around it and there are framed pictures of apostles. I think they were apostles. And when people come into the church, the men go to the right and the women go to the left. So it's very old fashioned that way. And they kiss, they kiss the icons that these pictures that are framed, they kiss them. And when they bring their little children in, they pick the children up and the children kiss them. And it was, and they go around the church and they light candles. And it's just like this, Everything about it was very different from what I am mm. accustomed to. It was very different. Some of it was familiar from Catholic Church. There was incense. Yes. There was yes. holding the gilded Bible up, the priest wearing the, the robes and the silk sashes and all that. Um, it, was very, it was very strange. The service was two and a half hours long, and you weren't sitting, so you were standing for two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> And what, what Kyle says about this, and believe me, it was it made an impression on me, okay? Mm. It, it, it was like an ordeal. I, I can tell you, and this is silly, but I'll just tell you, when we left there, my shoulders were so sore from standing in this respectable position for two and a half hours. I was like beat up, you know? Yeah. I, f- I felt like I was at a concert all day long or something like that. And <laughs> no chance of falling asleep in the sermon then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, what Kyle tells me is that he sees these people do this, and he sees a level of what he his words, that they are serious about their religion. Hmm. And, and I can't deny that there's a level of obligation and there's a level of um, discipline that did not exist in my church growing up. Yeah. Yeah. People were there because they wanted to be there and it wasn't easy to be there and they were being there anyway, you know? And then he says something else. He says that there's something in this church that is missing from the religion that he 
experience growing up. And I talked to him about it. I'm like, what is it that's missing? Do you think, what is it that this Orthodox service situation experience seems to have that you were missing? And he says, he doesn't exactly say this, but this is what I deduced in Orthodoxy. They believe that the being spiritual and following the religion and the rituals and becoming engrossed and making this a part of your life, that it has a goal in mind. And the goal is to become Christ-like. The goal is to become closer to God. And all of this mm-hmm. probably sounds familiar yeah. to you, but they have this <clears throat> they have this formalized to what they call theosis. And what they say is that if you ah. practice, if you practice and you become more and more Christ-like, that you will eventually become God. Now, they would probably disagree with my simplification of this, but theosis means to become God. And you and I might say something like to become one with God. And that's a that's what I how I would describe a mystical spiritual experience to become one with God, to uh, identify with God, to lose your sense of self and assume God as your own identity. And this is something like what they say the goal is of the religious practice. Now, I don't know about you, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but when I was growing up, going to church, they, they, basically, they basically said the purpose of being spiritual and learning the religion is to avoid hell and damnation, right? It's like if you can understand how you're supposed to behave and you, and you accord yourself that way, you, you will be able to go to heaven and you will avoid hell. And so yeah. the goal of religion is to not go to hell. And in, in orthodoxy, the goal of religion is to become God. And so the difference is very subtle, but very important. Yeah. In, orthodox, in orthodoxy, you have a goal that you can strive for. And if you come, come up short and you fail, it's fine. You just continue to try and to try and perfect yourself. And eventually you will, you will be able to, to earn this great gift of becoming God. And in my religion, that wasn't on the table. God is, no. is infinitely far away, and we are the scum of the earth. We're sinners, and there's no yeah. becoming God. There's a, a giant gulf between me and God. And so this is what I think Kyle meant when he said that there's something missing from the religion he was he was you know, belong to growing up that this orthodoxy seems to provide. And I think that's intriguing. So what do you think about that? Mm, Very interesting. Right. So I've got a few lines of thoughts on that. Um, So as a, as a Jehovah's Witness, first of all, the kind of church environment, um, Jehovah's Witnesses don't have, what they call churches they don't have churches they have they call kingdom halls right based on the idea of the kingdom of god it's a hall where you go to and you learn about the kingdom of god supposedly um they tend to be very um basic um there's no idols there's no no fonts no 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 artwork nothing it's more like going into a a kind of community hall um it's just got normally got like a platform at the front with a with a a lectern that people people stand at to give their 
their talks, their discourses, and uh, just rows of seats. That's it. Um, there's no segregation. You know, women and men sit together, uh, children, families all together, that kind of thing. They do tend to, you do tend to dress up when you go to Kingdom Hall. So you'll wear, um, you know, the men wear suits and ties and um, shirts and the uh, the ladies tend to wear uh, dresses. So things like um, you said about jeans and trousers outside of the Kingdom Hall um, in your day to day life. But at church, you wouldn't at Kingdom Hall, you would wear you would wear a dress. Um, the there's uh, songs at the beginning, middle and end, uh, which are um, uh, composed by Jehovah's Witnesses. So they're not like traditional mm. uh, hymns. They're, they're songs that they've created themselves. Interestingly, they uh, they quite often uh, plagiarise uh, plagiarize um, songs from uh, non-witness sources. There, there's a song called... Um, to whom do we belong? It, it goes something to whom do we belong? Um, and it's, it's almost identical. In fact, it used to be identical to the Australian national anthem <laughs> <laughs> until someone pointed it out and then they changed a few notes. Mm. Um, so they sing that. And then uh, they, the, I wouldn't say it's a liturgy in a liturgy, liturgy in so far as it's identical the time but there are there are a list of about a hundred um subjects um which are provided from headquarters in london or new york um outlines of what to speak about so the speakers will have an outline given to them and they that's that's what they speak to the congregation about so they can sort of put their their own sort of creative flair on it a little bit but they, you know, if you, if you go a bit too far off script, you get you get told off, like I used to. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd go way off tangent when I was giving talks. Um, so yeah, it's very uh, it, it's very simple uh, from that point of view. It's quite monotonous. Um, I, I used to, and I know a lot of others do. You sort of sit in when the speaker's not particularly very good. You sort of sit there thinking, is that the time? be like two o'clock uh two two hour meeting normally something like that um so that's sort of like the uh that's that's the the kind of background in terms of what the aim was that's uh, interesting you say that the aim with the uh, orthodox church is to to become like god there was never really that that kind of spiritual connection with um the witnesses i always used to feel there was a lot of there was a lot of doing and not a lot of accomplishing anything. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Jehovah's Witnesses go with the uh, the Protestant or what most Protestant religions um, accept, which is the, the doctrine of original sin. The fact that I, Adam messed it up, Adam and Eve messed it up for us and Jesus is the saviour and somehow we've, you know, we're never going to be able to be good enough without Jesus' sacrifice. Interestingly, not all um, not all branches of Christianity actually believe in the original sin doctrine. Mm, interesting. And J Judaism doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, main, mainstream Judaism, uh, the idea that a person is born sinful, inherited sin from Adam, 
doesn't exist within Judaism. Um, you're born pure, and then you know you you kind of make your own mistakes. So that's a uniquely uh, Christian development. That's interesting. A uniquely Christian development. Yeah, it wasn't an original Christian idea. Um, mm. The idea was that you made your own mistakes and then you needed Jesus to save you from that. But as time's gone on, it's kind of this whole idea that you're actually born as an enemy of God from mm. the outset, you know, and you're, you're kind of handicapped from the outset with that idea. And Jehovah's Witnesses are very big on that, the fact that you're never good enough. You can't, you know, you, you will never gain salvation. You're, you're born deserving of death. Mm. And that kind of messes with your head a little bit because you never really feel good enough. Sure, and they say that they say like many, many sort of uh, born again uh, churches kind of teach that you know we're saved by the grace of God, right? They do kind of teach that they change the word grace to undeserved kindness, which I think kind of sucks a bit because it sort of makes you feel like you really don't you know you're not deserving of this, um, you're not worthy. Um, but then it's like, even though they say that you're, you're saved by Jesus sacrifice, they still want you to do more, do more, do more all the time. And it's normally in the form of, uh, preaching is the big thing for Jehovah's witnesses, you know, going out and trying to convert other people over to the religion. So you're always sort of on the back foot with that, trying to, um, as for becoming like God, um, the, the, the witnesses have two versions of uh, destiny. For the vast majority, they have the idea that uh, the vast majority of Jehovah's Witnesses will go on to live forever on a paradise earth. So uh, they, they hold the idea that Armageddon is uh, a period in the future where Jesus will come and kill everybody, men, women and children. And even the dogs and cats, if they don't believe, if they're not a Jehovah's Witness um, at Armageddon, everybody dies. That's it. They've had the chance because they didn't listen to the preaching work. That Je you know, when Jehovah's Witnesses come around on a Saturday morning and say, "I've got a message for you," if you say, "Oh no, I'm not interested," that's you're just wickedly rejecting the message. Mm. So when Armageddon comes, that's it. You're toast. Um, but if you manage to survive Armageddon, uh, if you're one of those lucky 1% of the world's population, um, you get to live on the earth forever and turn it into a paradise. And then they've got, you know, in Revelation, it talks about 144,000 in heaven. Yeah, right. I believe that 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses get the privilege of going to heaven. So there's only 144,000 born-again Christians or anointed Christians. Yep. And they Seven. go to heaven to be with, uh, with Jesus and God and rule over the earth, basically. Yes, yeah, 7 billion people alive now, not to mention the ones that have yeah, already come and gone. I checked it the other day, actually. It's gone up. It's uh, over 8 billion people now mm. since I last looked. Yeah, it's 8 Chinese billion people. And there's 8.6 million Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, so, yeah, point about 0.1% of the world's population. They, they think the other 99.9% .9 will be killed at Armageddon. Um, you see, the, the, the interesting thing, this, this is where I started parting ways with Jehovah's Witnesses. Years ago, I started reading the Bible 
uh, myself without any sort of bias. You know, in the past, I'd always sort of looked at what Jehovah's Witnesses said the Bible meant through their publications and through the meetings at the Kingdom Hall and what have you. And around about 2004, I thought, you know what, I'm going to actually look at the Bible. Sort of thing, unless it's clearly an illustration or symbolic. And uh, there's one section in uh, Peter, I think it is, it says, it might be John, I might be conflating a couple of accounts here, but it says, uh, regarding Jesus, it says, uh, we do not know what he is like, but when we see him, we will see him face to face and we shall be like him. Mm. That was the first bit. And then it goes, I think it's Peter, it goes on to say, we will become sharers in divine nature, mm. which to me, that effectively means that you become part of God. I would say God, so. Yes. The nature of God. Um, but that kind of doctrine was never really taught within. There was always this kind of separation between, like you said about God and, and everybody else. There was always that separation between God and you. Right. Even if you made it to heaven, even even if you were like Jesus Himself in heaven, so God so would still be separate to you. What was being one of the hundred and forty-four thousand something that can be earned, or was it was it something that was predetermined? Neither. Um, it was it was supposedly by the grace of God, based on His His choice. Um, you see what the what the witnesses believe is that the um, the kingdom of God, it's not something within you. It's not a feeling or uh, anything like that. It's an actual kingdom, an actual domain of a king over over, over a domain. So, so for example, um, yeah, is it Shakespeare where it talks about uh, my kingdom for a horse? Was that Shakespeare? Yeah, I think so. I think it, so the, the, the word kingdom, the old word for kingdom literally means the domain of a king or, or a government, a government, if you will, for want of a king with subjects and so on. So the witnesses have always taught that the kingdom of God is an actual government with a, with a, um, a centralised point of authority, which would be heaven, a king, which would be Jesus, cabinet members, which would be the 144,000, the biggest cabinet ever. And then the uh, the subjects or the civilians would be the um, would be those living on the earth. Can you imagine? So there's a very, there's a very us and that. This is the thing you'll find in cult like religions. They always play people off against each other. There's always like elite groups. You know, if you're you sort of start your bog standard Jehovah's Witness that is called a publisher. They, they just go out and talk to people sort of 10 hours a, a month or whatever. And then you've got pioneers, which do 30 hours or 60 hours or 90 hours or 130 hours, depending on what rank you are. Then you get your ministerial servants, which are like sort of um, dog's bodies to run around doing all the, all the chores in the congregation. Then you've got your elders, which are overseers. Then you've got circuit overseers. Then you've got people that are of the anointed. <laughs> then you've got um, nine of the anointed that are the governing body in uh, in America, and they basically speak for, for you know they say is the very word of God. 
so it's, it's all it's all us it's all us and them there's this hierarchy you know all the way up and then mm. you've got jesus and god and it's just kind of you never really there's always there's always something more to achieve mm. yeah absolutely now, that, this that... is what i mean when i say about i found some peace finally in my life i'm i'm very happy about that man you you deserve that so i'm very happy at that about that it, it, what you're saying reminds me of the way that the military is structured right mm -hmm. the higher yeah. the hierarchy of the military it also reminds me of the um scientologists i don't know how much you got into the scientologists but <laughs> but they have they have levels right so so yeah. your participation starts at these lower levels until you become what they call ot which is a which is an operating thetan and they just keep going up from there. So you you've got these, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and there's no end to that, right? You just keep you just keep going up and up and up. It really messes with your head, though, because then they'll say, "Oh, but we're all equal." <laughs> and it's like, well, you, you might say that, but you're not all equal because, like, for example, if a, if a if a rank and file member of the organisation changes what the governing body says then you get designated as an apostate and kicked out and shunned by all your family and friends. So it's like, um, you know, you're not equal. Right. You're not, even, right. you're not even equal to the elders in the congregation. Right. You know, if you, I was saying to Mariella the other day, you know, when I was an elder, it was relatively safe because the only, the only people directly that could, tell me off or punish me for anything were my fellow elders um when the circuit overseer came to visit that was like a traveling elder when he came to visit if he didn't like you he could tell you off but the elders tended to be like they wouldn't dare tell you off because it was like the old glass houses illustration you know if they told you off they were worried that you'd tell them off for something so it was a bit of an old boys club sure but I, f I feel sorry for anyone in my elders because sometimes you get elders that are really, um, they're, they're just, they're bullies, to be honest. You know, with, with authority often comes a lot of um, bullying of people and pushing people around and forcing them to, you know. Sure. And that that's kind of my, that's my kind of experience. I got religion. You know, it was you were always separate from God. You could, you were never quite good enough, mm. and um, there was a lot of people pleasing going on, which doesn't particularly seem very spiritual to me. No. So your experience to me seems worse in some ways than what I was describing, because even though, like from my perspective, my my acts and my faith could. Um, provide a reward and the reward was heaven in mm. your case in your case your your faith in your acts were essentially meaningless because it's all up to um it's all up to god whether you're uh anointed whether yeah. whether you're going to be one of them so even if you try really hard and you do really well it's up to it's up to the whims yeah, of the we're, <laughs> well yes i can say you enough yeah and you, you preach enough and you're good enough and you've not, you know, you, you, you managed to make it through Armageddon. All right. So this is the end of the world as we know it.
one of the 0.1% one, that survive it. They then say that you've got a thousand years where Jesus rules over the earth with 144,000 that have all cleared off to heaven. Um, a thousand years. And during that thousand years, you have to try and get from imperfect to perfect during mm. that thousand years. The only way you will do that is by continuing to uh, obey the, the religion that would presumably still exist for that thousand years, you know, doing what you're told. And when you get to the end of the thousand years, so you've made it now, yeah, and God says, right, you are now perfect, okay? He then lets Satan the devil and all the demonic angels, which, according to the witnesses, were th and, and the Bible, I suppose, were thrown into a a kind of abyss at the at the beginning of the thousand years. So they couldn't affect anything for a thousand years. At the end of 1,000 years, Je uh, Jesus opens the door of that abyss and Satan and the angels come out and it starts all over again. They test you again to see whether or not you're, you know, uh, w whether you can stand up to Satan's, you know, temptations and what have you. And if you, if you fail at that last minute, you're thrown into the second death or the, the lake of fire mm. and destroyed forever. And it's like, it, it's just one of those situations where it's like you, you never quite make it. You never get to the point where you feel, do you know what? I feel one with God and I feel peaceful. So, so you see how the, especially the, the Jehovah's Witness perspective, it seems to beat you down. It seems to really uh -huh. beat, beat you down spiritually. Now, you, you brought up the Buddhists earlier, and, and I'm not mm. a Buddhist, so I'm just going to do my no, best no. here. But, mm. but in Buddhism, you have a goal of your religious practice, which is nirvana. So if you can, if you can perfect yourself and you can discipline yourself to a degree where you can reach nirvana, then you become a Buddha yourself. You become um, a bodhisattva or whatever. I'm not, maybe I'm not pronouncing that word right, but, but you become like a saint. And then you can choose to ascend into, you know, nirvana, whatever that means, or you can remain on earth and help to help to teach others how to reach nirvana themselves. And I only say that because you see that in Buddhism, there's a goal to your religious practice. Yeah. And in, or in an orthodoxy, that is similar. Your goal is theosis. It's kind of like nirvana. If I try and I discipline myself and I, yeah. and I, can, and I overcome, then I, I have something that I can strive towards where you and I and our religion – we didn't have that, especially no. you, especially there was, you. <laughs> there was always a, uh, a moving of the goalposts or a, you know, it was a carrot and stick, basically. But then that's what cults are definitely like that. That's how cults, cults operate. And I would say a lot of Christian church, even the Catholic church is somewhat like that because, you know, you've got the heaven and hell that you, you're trying to avoid hell. You're trying to get to heaven. But when you die, unless you've been really, really good, you don't even go straight to heaven. You go to purgatory. Right. And then, it, then it's up to your family on earth to burn enough candles and say enough prayers <laughs> to get you released. It's almost like a waiting room where you're sitting there thinking, am I going to go that way or that way? You know? Right. And then when they've said enough prayers and paid money and you know whatever then you get released and you go to heaven but it's like and then what 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 do you do in heaven 
I don't know. You know, um, th this is why uh, I the the the. the I wouldn't even say I'm religious now. I'm spiritual. And the the spiritual belief that I've come to now, <clears throat> excuse me, is that we, we're perfect as we are. Mm. The, the divinity within us, whatever that is, that consciousness that is working through this body, with it. It is God. I am God. You are God. We're all God. And this striving to become, you know, good enough, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. We've, we've already, we're already there. We're already there. And this body, you know, you can look at my, look at my body and say, well, that's a bit crap. You know, it's, um, <laughs> and it breaks down and it dies, you know, and people say, oh, well, there you go. That's, that's imperfect. That's sin for you. no, it's just because your body is physical and everything physical dies. Yes. Everything physical breaks down, including the universe. You know, it's, it goes in cycles. And uh, when you, when you kind of come to that, that realization, there's, there's nobody to worship. There's nobody to pray to, you know, there's no hymns to sing, no songs to sing, no church to do. Um, you just accept your divinity and you accept the fact that we're all one. And you know the golden rule: be nice to people. Which ultimately, that is that ultimately is what all the churches are saying, isn't it? If you're nice to people, like Jesus said, do unto others. Do unto others. You know, eventually, if you. But the thing is, they complicate it. They throw in all these other things, don't they? You've got to do enough preaching or enough contributions of money or enough of this or enough of that. You know, and it's like, oh God, it so just wanna, gets. Uh, I want to push back on the uh, prayer thing mm. for a second, because ah, one, yes, of things, please, please, one, yeah. one of the things one of the things you said in the past is that that prayer and worship are difficult to reconcile with the idea that we are God. That are we? Yeah. Right. Like, who are you praying to if you're God? And what are exactly. you? You know, what are you sacrificing to if you're God? You know, and um, and I have to say. One of the things I've been doing lately, because I've prayed my whole life, like my mother taught me how to pray when I was a child, and I prayed like that my entire life, like my entire life. Most nights, you know, for a long time, it was every night, and I've gotten a little bit away from it. But what I've done recently is I, at night, mostly when I'm laying down, getting ready to sleep, is I'll close my eyes and I will focus on my awareness. Mm -hmm. so I'll focus yeah. on my my consciousness. And it's not consciousness of anything in particular. It's just the awareness of the nothingness behind my closed eyes. And mm -hmm. I feel like that awareness is me, but also not me. And I try to, I try to make myself identify with that feeling. And what, I, what I've done lately is rather than praying like I used to pray into the abyss, you know, <clears throat> I would just say words echoing through my head. What I do is I try to speak to that awareness. And mm. I know that it's, I know that it's me that I'm speaking to. I know that it's God that I'm speaking to, but it's not, it's not Chris and it's not my ego and it's not my persona. It's not this face and my memories and my emotions and my preferences. It's something deeper than that. And I speak to it and 
it feels like something, Daniel. It feels like something. <clears throat> yeah. Like it didn't. It didn't used to. When I was a kid, and I would say, you know, dear God, please don't let my girlfriend be pregnant, uh, because <laughs> because I, I I did a lot of fornicating as a young man. Uh, it's not like that, right? It's it's something else, and I do feel right. like there's something to that, and it okay. helps. It helps me to yeah. identify with this part of myself that's not my ego it's not my it's it's something deeper than that right so i so so coming back on that although i would i i would say prayer and worship is not necessary it's unnecessary but there could be some uh, benefits in it there could be some benefits in it yeah um so i'm not i'm not sort of against praying or or worship per se but i think it's understanding like you were saying there this this kind of you've got chris and then you've got the not chris there's from my point of view that there is no duality it's it's everything is one everything is one yes but duality as illusor as much of an illusion as it is it's necessary in order for anything to happen Absolutely. Uh, if you imagine that there was, if you imagine that there was just God or Source or whatever in its in its purest form, there would be no this and that, or me and that, or us and them, or yin and yang, whatever you want to call it. It would just be potentiality, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes, Whereas it would. If you, if you fra- fragment it into into many, so the one becomes many, even though it's only an illusion. Um, that's how you, that's how experience occurs. That's how relationships happen. That's how you, you know, even, even, even if you were locked in solitary somewhere and you didn't have another person to speak to, you would tend to fragment. You would start speaking to yourself. You'd have conversations. I I mean, I I do it anyway. I I think most people do. You have conversations in your own head, you know, that was, that was not very clever, Daniel, you know, or, or whatever. 100%. And I think that's kind of I think that's kind of what's going on with prayer. But I think it's it's a deeper it's a deeper experience, isn't it? Because prayer is all about I think prayer for the most part is about gratitude. Well, it's two things, isn't it? Prayer to me, it's either about thanking God or, or whatever it is you're praying to for the good things, and then begging that the bad things don't happen. Yes, yes. that's often the case, isn't it? Yes. Um, but then what's the difference? What would you say the difference, Chris, between prayer and just manifestation is? Is it not the same thing? I don't know. How, how are you defining manifestation? Um, the, the kind of idea of, of kind of visualizing what it is you want to happen, yeah. what you don't want to happen, okay. what you do want to happen. Yes. And I suppose throw a bit of gratitude into that as well. Because yeah. I, I still get... It's a funny thing. I, I spent my life praying. Um, and particularly we used to say meals. So, you know, like, I suppose you call it saying grace, don't you, before, before a meal. Mm-hmm. And the, prob- the problem with that was over 50 years of saying a prayer over every meal that you ever have, you know, whether it's your cornflakes in the morning or some beans on toast or whatever at lunchtime, it becomes very... Um, very rote doesn't it it becomes you know you sit down and you say dear god you know or dear jehovah god 
thank you for my beans on toast through Jesus. Amen. You know, and then yes. the next day, yes. dear Jehovah, thank you for my cornflakes through Jesus. Amen. And it, you, you sort of, you run out of things to say in the end. Yeah. Now yep. I, I don't, I don't kind of feel necessarily but it's a funny thing even now when i sit down with a meal whether mariella's prepared it or i've prepared it i feel like i should be saying thank you to somebody no i understand well (laughs) no i mean i've I've just spent the time mariella making the meal but for some reason, I feel I feel I need to say to some external source, you know, thank you for everything you've given me this day. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Now, I think that some people will say the skeptics will say that you've been trained to to think mm. that way because you've that's been right. praying your whole life. And that's yeah. that's some of that is true. But I also think that there is an instinct for that, that there is an instinct for gratitude. And it comes mm. it comes down to self-sacrifice. And I think this is really important because when you understand the world to be one, the way that you and I do, then you understand that every gift is a sacrifice. Every gift is something from yourself to yourself. Every sacrifice is a sacrifice of self to self. Every relationship you have, every conversation you have like like this now, um, it's something that we're getting we see, we see, you know, creatures that are alive, dying mm. and becoming and becoming our food and becoming incorporated into our bodies. And you see how everything is like this. Death and life are are constantly being recycled. And there's something about understanding the oneness of things. Yeah. Like there can't be there can't be Chris and Daniel without all of the rest of the cosmos. Yeah. Can't, it's all it's all one thing, and and so life is self sacrificial, and that is what is taught through the story of Jesus, the sacrifice of God to God, and by God, Jesus God to Daniel and Chris God. Right, we're all God. It's 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 give, giving up one's life for the cosmos, for life itself, and so everything is self sacrificial. Yeah. And that's what there is to be grateful for. Even though you're you're in a sense you're be you're grateful to yourself, there's always this sense of otherness that you brought up, right? There is yep. no duality. Yeah, right. There is no experience without duality. There is no experience without otherness. And so we have something to be grateful to, right? And for. And whatever that thing is, is not ourselves, and it is ourselves. And this is a paradox. And I think that whenever you encounter this paradox, there are many people that will throw up their hands and say, you're talking nonsense. But there are a few people like you and I, who will hear that paradox, and we smile and we say, listen, I don't understand it exactly, but it resonates. It's true. I know that it's true. And, it, and, and the, it, ni- the nice, the nice thing about it is you can you can decide which of those, uh, whether you want to go with duality or non-duality um, at any particular time. You know, if you want to go down the, the, even though I say it's an illusion, this duality is an illusion. You know, if you want to, if you want to think 
dualistically, you know, you can look at the sunset and think, wow, that's amazing. You know, you can look at the, you know, the stars on a moonlit, moonlit night and think that's, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. And feel thankful and grateful and so on. Or you can drop into the, <clears throat> I suppose, during periods of meditation, like you were saying, when you're laid in bed, you know, just thinking about your consciousness, you can drop to this kind of non-duality, which is your pure core, who you are. And you realize that all these other things, are they're not separate to you. They are you. And that's where you find some peace. So it's, uh, to me, it's almost like the non-duality is what gives me peace. The illusion yes. of duality is what gives me some interest in my life. <laughs> yes, I think that's true. I mean, you get, pretty, you get pretty bored sitting around just thinking all day, well, this is it. I'm God. <laughs> well, it's, it's, the difference, <laughs> it's, it's the difference between looking at the sunset and saying, oh, my God, that's breathtakingly beautiful. This is a one-in-a-lifetime you know, shade of color, and I'll, it'll never be exactly this way again, and I get to witness it, and you can be filled with gratitude by this. And then there's the, there's the step forward. There's a step ahead of that where you, you get subsumed by that beauty, and then you recognize that the thing that I'm enamored by is no different from me it's you yeah. connect with that beauty and you identify with it and you know that's the non-duality that's the non-duality and i i think what's happened um when it comes to re and all of that is very spiritual it's not religious it's spiritual i feel that religion as in structured organized religion where you belong to a group what's kind of happened there it probably started off fairly, um, fairly innocently, you know, where people look at a sunset and think, well, there must be someone that created that. Oh, it's a separate God, you know, and that separate God either needs pleasing or appeasing or whatever. So they start. But then you start getting like a, a religion will grow out of that, won't it? And it becomes where I think religion goes wrong is you end up with a elite group of people within that religion, whether it's your elders or your priests or your, your, your bishops or popes or whatever. And they're the only ones that are supposedly in, in touch with God. Mm. And they get to tell you what God wants you to do. And that's where I think the abuse comes in. Because yep. no longer, no longer are you just looking at a sunset, thinking that's wonderful. There must be a source behind that. I shall be thankful or grateful or worship. You're now behooven to a group of people that feel, you know, an elite group of people that feel that they they can tell you everything that you need to do. And the interesting thing, it's often it often these sacrifices that they demand, whether it's in the form of money or time or your devotion or whatever it benefits them somehow doesn't it yeah yes that that always seems a little you know they start asking for your money and then the next thing you find is they're living in luxury somewhere you know yeah absolutely yeah it's a problem so that's where i think religion i you know i totally respect for example the fact that kyle has has found a religion that you know, he, he feels worth it. You know, I won't begrudge that or criticize that at all. Personally, I haven't found a religion um, that does it for me. Nor have I. 
Or have I, I've looked, I've looked all around. You know, Hinduism. Uh, I could not take on Hinduism even um, fully for the simple reason that you you end up worshiping not just one god. You end up worshiping thirty three million deities. You know, <laughs> all supposedly the same god, but right. Um, Buddhism. I tried. I tried Buddhism for a little bit, and I found it a little bit um, nihilistic. Mm. Uh, quite quite depressing, actually. I found Buddhism, if I'm honest. Sure. Right. I mean, you Christianity. I don't think resembles anything. No form of Christianity that I've come across resembles what Jesus taught. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. In fact, I still I still wonder what it is that Jesus taught. I still wonder that. And I, uh, I I don't see that in the Gospels very clearly. Uh, when I no, read, I, I mean, I I think it was probably looking looking at the the sort of thing that comes through the most. It was oneness mm. and loving others as yourself. I think that 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 was what Jesus was about. Yeah, I think that's very important, and it's it it's over the heads of of most Christians to love your neighbor as yourself, to turn the other cheek. To wash the feet of the of the of the disciples, there's all this stuff that that shows a humbleness from Jesus, a a putting himself below everyone else. It's a like you say, it's a uh, a oneness. It's a cue towards uh, unity with his uh, apostles yep. and with you know the the dredges of society, the poor and the and the meek and the whores and all of these things. And and this is something that even modern Christians cannot wrap their heads around um, well, the, the problem is i think for the most part what happens with christianity they look at it and they go oh jesus taught that we're all one and we should love each other but that doesn't seem enough i think religion does is it looks at it and goes hmm doesn't seem enough there needs to there's something more to this you know and then they start hmm. adding we need to burn candles and and Say all these prayers and hymns and build all these churches with big icons and everything Right. You know, I think that's the problem. I think they overcomplicate the hell out of it. That's the problem. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's possible that the overcomplication comes from the the not only the political um, motives that that were brought to the religion when it became mainstream during during the time yep. of Constantine, but also the religious baggage that came along with it. So all of the yep. Roman religious uh, traditions that came along with it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because Christianity as a, let's take it as a Catholic, Catholic religion, Christianity as Catholicism, you've got a mishmash there, haven't you, between what Jesus taught, what they had sort of in terms of their 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 gods. I mean, they had many gods, didn't they? You know, the uh, many many Roman gods. All the kind of festivities and festivals and sacrifices they did, Saturnalia, all these sort of things. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got the Judaistic religion that's been inherited into it as well. And I, I get the impression that Jesus was saying, you know, the reason the reason we're in such a mess is because you know we're Jews and we've got this in this whole religious baggage going on, you know, you know, with all these sacrifices and temple worship and do this, do that, don't do this, all the priesthood and everything. Get rid of all that. We don't need it. 
We don't need that. We just need to be one and love each other. Yes. That's how Christianity started. And then it's like, oh, that doesn't seem enough. And they start almost Judaizing Christianity, don't they? Yes. You know, instead of instead of the priests, you you know, that used to burn the sacrifices, you've now got vicars and bishops and Yes. You know, instead of the instead of the temple, you've now got churches that you've got to build and upkeep. Whereas Jesus' teaching was that the temple, you know, you are the temple. We are exactly. the temple. So so there's a couple of different directions I want to go here. Um, hmm. This idea of the kingdom of God and what you just brought up about being the temple, this is something that I want to talk about. But I also want to talk about the Zoroastrianism because you brought up the Magi. So which, which hmm. one do you want to do first? Let's go with the temple, shall we? Let's okay. hear your views on the temple of God. What is it? So I think that I think that 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 your body being the temple of God is something like and there's a Jewish word and I'm going to mispronounce it I'm sure but it's something like Shekinah or something like that and that's it, where it, the Shekinah comes from isn't it that's probably it yes the, so a light yeah it, this is a word that's been associated with the Holy Spirit because the the way that the Jews speak about it is if there's more than a few gathered in the name and you know in 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 uh, uh, fellowship, um, then the spirit of God is supposed to be with them. And so, yep. as a as a Christian, we say that's the Holy Spirit. The Jews called that Shekinah or whatever that word, however you pronounce that word. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, there's this idea that the temple, the Holy of Holies, in this case, is the place where God comes to rest. So if you want to um, uh, give a sacrifice and you want God to be present there to accept your sacrifice, then you go to the Holy of Holies, to the place where God rests. That, you know, that's the place where you can be in the presence of God. Now, the, Bi- the Bible says that the body is the temple of God. That's the and Christian view, yeah. Sure. So what, what yeah. that means to me is this is where, this is the Holy of Holies, this is where God comes to rest, and that's what we call our life. That's what we call our soul. That's what we call our consciousness. So the thing that makes us alive is the Spirit of God, right? And we are the temple where the Spirit comes to rest, and that's the animating force of life and being. Yeah. And um, what else? There's something else here. Hold on. <laughs> uh, Can I just jump in there? Yes. Yes, please. So you you talk about the Shekinah uh, or Shekinah. So the the Israelites, according to the narrative, when they first built their tabernacle, um, the word tabernacle just just means a dwelling. If you tabernacle with somebody, you dwell with them, you live with them, you're in their presence. So they they, um, built the tabernacle, which was just basically a tent, for God with a, a holy compartment and a most holy compartment where they put the, the Ark of the Covenant and the, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on and uh, a jar of manna. Um, there was a, a, apparently, this is how, how the narrative goes, there was a light that used to shine out from that um, Ark of the Covenant out through the top of the tabernacle into the sky by by daytime it appeared as a fire by night uh sorry by daytime it appeared as a a cloud by nighttime it appeared as a fire 
Mm. And when the Israelites used to pick their temple, uh, tabernacle up and pack it all up and move it around the wilderness for 40 years, that cloud or that pillar of fire would, would go ahead of them. Um, when that was because they had like the tabernacle in the middle of the camp and all the millions of tents around it. When uh, Solomon actually built a permanent temple for God after a load of prayers and rituals were done, sacrifices, um, it's, it says that the, the presence of God came upon that ten- temple. And it, again, it was as a, as a light. Mm. Um, so it is a, it's about God. The idea was about God dwelling with you, yeah. and I think this. I think you're right when you say God is um, the temple now, um, and this is this is why, from a certainly from a Christian point of view, you have to keep your your body somewhat holy. You know, if you mess your body up with fornicating and you know loads of drink and all the rest of it that's going to affect somehow your spirituality. Absolutely. And if you, if you then think that the body is, is the temple, what is it that's residing in the body? It's your, it's your isness, your amness, isn't yeah. it? Yes. You know, if you are God, you are residing within this body. That's, yes. that's the whole point of it. I think if you go, um, sorry, if you go, uh, if you become very flesh, I'm, I'm not saying you know that we need to be uh, um, ascetic about this, but if if you if you if you become very focused on physical things, you lose that that spiritual inner glow, don't you? Mm, absolutely. And I want to I want to say that I think there are ancient. Jewish scriptures that support this idea. Mm-hmm. If we go all the way back to Genesis, because it mm-hmm. says, it says in the beginning that God was that it says the spirit of God was on the surface of the waters. That's what it says, right? So when God creates the heavens and the earth, He's immediately imminent in the creation. He's the mm-hmm. spirit of God is on the surface of the waters. He creates them and He's there in them, right? And and then it says that the spirit of God is breathed into Adam. It's breathed into yes. the clay. Very good. So yeah. what, you, what you see is that God is imminent in man the same way he's imminent in the cosmos. God creates and he's in it. He, he creates us and he's in us. And you see that repeated in, in, the, in the most ancient scriptures. What makes us alive, our animating force, is the spirit of God. It is the essence of God. It is God. There is no difference. There's no distinction. No, there's, there's no distinction. And that's essentially what pandeism is. This yes. idea that, you know, you've either got, you've either got God or you've got, or you've got, this, the universe, us, and, and our place in it. You can't have both. It's, 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 it's this or it's that. And then Advaitism kind of goes between the two. It sort of says you've got the pure godness with no expression or you've got the godness with expression. It's, it's either one or the other. Right. What I'm experiencing right now and what you're experiencing right now is God manifest. Yes. We're experiencing ourselves through ourselves, through yes. our bodies and, and what's around us. <laughs> I love talking to you, man. You can't get away from the, the, the divinity. I don't think you can get away from the divinity within you. 
You stay. I love talking to you, Daniel, because you understand this. Nobody, nobody understands this. You know. Uh, I don't know if that's worrying. Actually, <laughs> you should uh, be worried. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe, maybe we're, maybe we're a couple of the hundred forty-four thousand. Oh God! <laughs> Please no. All right, let me switch have gears got, to. Uh, have we? Uh, how are we doing on time? Um, I've got maybe another 20, 30 minutes. Twenty minutes. I've got something I'd like to bounce off you if you haven't got anything. Oh well, I've got. I want to talk magi, but you said something that intrigued me. You said that I can't remember the words you used, but <laughs> that you that you had moments of seeing the simulation or something. So let's let's talk about that first. That's what I wanted to ask yeah. you about. Yeah. Yeah. So I read the other day. Um, it's on to feed. There's a study. Um, a couple of scientists, there's, there's one that puts a 20% chance that we're living in some form of simulated reality, um, which I thought was quite interesting. And then this this other guy, um, this other scientist, has come up with an idea. He said, if we're in a simulated reality, we should be able to break it. There should be some way of breaking out of it. Like when you're in a game, when you're in a computer game, you can, there are ways of hacking the game. You know, you might have a, a cheat code or something like that. But he said, one of the ways that we can, can break a simulation is by putting it under a lot of stress. If it's under a lot of stress, it may break. Mm. The best way to um, make the stress as strong as it can be is, first of all, to get everybody to a state where they're not stressed. So what you do is you, you sort of lower the stress levels of humanity right to a really, really low, low stress level. And then you put a load of stress on the system, and that All should right. break it. So his, his idea was um, get everybody um, everybody meditating. So they all came down to this sort of – and everybody come back online at once. That could break the simulation. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that, that's interesting because I had I had a question in my uh, in my I Am God book. What would happen if everybody went to sleep at the same time? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then we all woke up at the same time. Would it break the simulation? And it, this got me thinking of some occasions in my life when I've been under a huge amount of stress. Now I'm going back to when I was eleven, eleven years old. Um, and I was under a lot of stress because I was, I was suffering abuse at the time and my mental health was completely shot to pieces. And I remember three occasions where some weird, weird shit happened. So one of them, I came out of my bedroom and I went straight to the bathroom in the morning to clean my teeth. And my sister was in the bathroom. And I said, oh, Oh, you're in there. Okay, no worries. I'll come back later. So I walked down the stairs, yeah? Walked down the stairs, down into the dining room to have my breakfast, and my sister was there. (laughs) And I'm like, whoa, that's a bit weird, a bit of a glitch. There was another occasion um, I stepped off the top step of our staircase and I had the sensation that I literally just floated to the bottom. My feet didn't touch the staircase. Mm. It's a bit weird. And then the other occasion was uh, I was doing my homework in my bedroom, and all of a sudden it was like the room went dark. 
and my school blazer, which I've thrown on the floor, was in a, a, a sort of pinpoint of light. It was like a spotlight was on it. And this started moving across the floor, creeping across the floor. Mm. And I, I sort of, you know, lost it. I was like screaming, you know, oh, what's going on? You know, my mum and dad sort of run into the room and it's like, oh, there's nothing happening. And uh, sort of snapped out of it. And of course, being Jehovah's Witnesses, being sort of pseudo Christians that we were, the first thing that came to mind was, oh, maybe the devil's got in somewhere. You know, Ooh, we, we need to pray a lot and sort, sort this out, you know. Um, looking back on hindsight, I think I was seeing glitches in that simulation because I was under a huge amount of stress, plus I was on medication. And it, it just strikes me that when you take, because you've taken psychedelics in the past, when you take psychedelics, are you breaking the simulation? Are you start actually seeing the reality behind what it really is? So it's funny because... I don't have a whole lot that I can compare to what you just described, but I do have something, and I may have told you this before, but when I had my first mystical experience on uh, a psychedelic substance, I remember my brain moving like a million miles an hour, processing, thinking through things like in a superhuman way. And when it happened, I had these moments where it felt like I don't know. I don't really have the words to describe this, but I'll tell you. It felt like my consciousness was shuddering, and by that I mean, like imagine I was blinking mm. my eyes as fast as I, you can imagine, on and off, on and off, on and off. It was dark, and then it was back to reality, and then dark and back to reality. But it was so fast. It felt like in in my normal waking life, I didn't even notice that. But in the psychedelic state of mind, I. I actually experienced the shuddering so uh, so it, it seemed to me like my like reality was this is going to be crude but reality was going brrr, on and off that fast brrr, like your uh your sense of divinity or whatever was sort of encased within this body was somehow being released um the reason I say that is so my ex-wife, when she was in labor, was uh, given some drugs to help with the pain. And those drugs made her feel like she had exited her body and she was actually on the uh, ceiling of the hospital mm. uh, operating room looking down at her, her own body. So I, I didn't have an out-of-body experience like what you're describing, but when those shudderings were happening, uh, that's when I felt this mystical unity. That's when I felt the being one with the universe experience. And, and that could very easily be described as um, – I would, I might call it an ego death, but you can see how close an ego death is to an out of body experience. They're very, yeah. very similar. It's like, I wasn't there anymore. I was something more than myself. And then I was back and then I was something more than myself. And then I was back. Yeah. Oscillating and, between, oscillating between yeah. the two. Yes. So Mar Mariella's had, um, similar kind of breaks with reality. Again, when she's been under stress, particularly, she described it as being able to see almost a grid. Mm. You know, in Star Trek, where they've got like the, uh, the holodeck. 
Yes. And then the holodeck breaks and you start seeing these sort of geometrical patterns. Mm. That. And, uh, and I said, is, was it kind of like hexagons or something like that? And she said, no, it was, uh, it was squares, square grid. Interesting. It's, what's funny mm. about that to me is that what, what one of the most common visionary experiences in a psychedelic state is geometry. It's geometric shapes. It's not necessarily yeah. grid. It's more like um, it's more like um, a fractal transforming set of shapes that are constantly moving and changing. But it is mm-hmm. geometrical, and that's that's an interesting connection. Yeah. And I, I've I've got this I've got this kind of feeling that you know when you come online when you're a child you're born you're not immediately aware of what's around you there's sort of a period maybe when you're sort of eighteen months old or two years old where you come online yeah. it's almost like coming out of a kind of fog yeah. and then then you're sort of you've got this reality that you're in uh, I tend to think that that is probably what death is like but in reverse. That you're sort of back into a kind of, and you, I would imagine you're probably, it, well, it is going to be a break with this simulated reality as you die. Yes, I think so. I, I think that we have these. I don't know. I don't know what to call them. I think there's there's a guy named Bernardo Castro that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. That he he talks about there being, um, what does he call them? He calls them. Um, He, he talks about um, breaks in your consciousness, but he has a word for it that I'm, I, for some reason, mm. can't remember. Um, he talks about, like, in the sense of people that have uh, multiple personality disorders where they have a breaks within yeah. their own consciousness. But he also yeah. talks about that in mu- more mundane ways, like when you forget where you put your keys. It's like what – and then you mm. – and, re- and then you remember. It's like what happened? You had a break, and then you – repaired it you know it's like it's really hard to, to understand why it is that you couldn't remember where you put your keys and then oh yeah there that's where i put them yeah. it's very it's but he connects this um to the same sort of experience people talk about with uh multiple personality disorder and i i see that the oneness that we experience or the oneness that we are is broken up like this, where we have these exactly. we have these yep. psychological divisions, these walls that we put up, and that allows us to see the differences between, well, I want to say between ourselves, you know, between the oneness, between what makes me me and you you is some sort of a, a dissociative boundary. That's the word. There's a dissociative boundary, and yep. and when when you die, I imagine that those walls come down. Yep. And we we cease to be ourselves because those boundaries are gone, and then we we melt back into the oneness. And so death, to me, is not a frightening thing at all. It's not something that I necessarily long for, but it's not a frightening thing. It, it it's something that I I look forward to as an experience. The same, I think, when I was uh, religious, when I was a Jehovah's Witness, death was always a little bit of a a scary sort of thought, you know, because I was always thinking, have I done enough? You know, what, what's on the other side of this? If, if, if I've not done enough, it's just oblivion, which it's not as bad as hell, but it's not a great thought, is it? Just being, no. you know, if, if you enjoy living. Um, 
there was always that have I done enough, do more, do more to get through. Now I just tend to think that death is the natural end of things. Mm. I do think if you're if you're preconditioned, you know, like if you're a Catholic and you 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 think about hell and purgatory, and you sort of know within yourself that you've not been a very good person, I would imagine death is not a particularly nice experience. I think how you're conditioned probably has an effect on that. But if you strip all of that away and just think, well, death is just a natural end to this particular experience of, of me being me, then, yeah, I would say it'd be quite an interesting experience, possibly even quite pleasant. I think so. And hmm. having having experienced this mystical oneness, having having experienced it in my waking life, there's nothing more pleasant, and I, I, that doesn't even do justice to it. There's something about it that once you have the experience, you want nothing more than to have it again. And if if I can have that again only when in my deathbed, I, I don't want to say I'm looking forward to it, but I'm not scared of it. I will embrace it. No, I'm here. Yeah, I think while while ever you're sort of in this experience, enjoy this experience, but know that it's a temporary experience, you know, and that and that's fine. That's okay. You see, the problem is what happens when you when you're so as as a Jehovah's Witness, you are always like trying to hold on to this idea of being you forever, whether that was you on earth forever or you in heaven forever. There was always that kind of attachment to it. And I think and until you can kind of let go of that attachment and say, you know, it's okay, it's temporary, you never really find that peace because you're always worried about losing it. Mm, yes. Or either losing your life or losing out on eternal life or whatever. Now, there, um, there's, there's, something, there's something about what you just said that reminds me of Buddhism, and I just want to mm. throw it out there. When the Buddhists say that you want to – um, remove attachments in your life so that you can reach enlightenment. One of those attachments, maybe the fundamental attachment, is the attachment to yourself. To yourself, yeah. The attachment to your ego, to your memories, to your to your, you know, uh, preferences, all that stuff. And if you can, body. if you, and if you can, it's your body. And if you can learn how to um, to detach from that then what fear do you have of death? What fear do exactly. you have? Exactly. And that's, that's part and parcel of the reason why I feel at peace now. That's great. Uh, total peace. There's a, I, I think we've discussed it before, but there's, um, there's this idea that you've got your, your physical body and you've got your subtle body, or I suppose what some people would call your astral body and the, and the two can separate, you know, um, mm. what holds one to the other while you're having this experience is the uh, what, what's known as the silver cord oh, yeah. in mysticism holds it together. And there's a section in Ecclesiastes in the Bible that talks about when your body eventually breaks down and dies, it's like the silver cord has been severed. Mm. And I think that silver cord has got a lot to do with this kind of what seems a, a real solid connection between me and my body. But when you when you go into meditative states or psychedelic states, or when you're under a lot of stress, I think there's probably something happening there where you're disassociating from that body. Yes. Um, yes, there, there. Yeah, you might say that that cord is severed in those situations. You might call that, or, or, or at the very least, it's being stretched. 
or in the very least, it's been stretched to to the most minute possible yeah. level. Just, yeah, just some some people have had uh, near near death experiences, haven't they? Where they've they've literally gone almost to the end of that tunnel of light or whatever, right? Yeah. And then they've been snapped back into their body again. Whereas others have presumably gone that far, and then it's it's broken, and they've carried on their journey. Mm. You know. Yeah. Um, but I think I think this this just this idea that we've got this concept of the I being separate to the body. I think I think that that just tells you that there's something on the other side. This this right. is only a simulated reality of sorts. Well, that's another thing that Bernardo said that I think is great. He said that when you're dreaming, you know that you well, when you wake up from a dream anyway, you know that your that your mind is capable of creating all of the imagery and the yeah. and the sensations and the thoughts and emotions that you experience in your waking life. Your mind is capable all on its own of creating that because that's what a dream feels like. You don't know that you're dreaming when you're dreaming. So the idea that we're in our we're in our waking life and it's somehow different. There's no justification for that. No. It's and this is why that scientist said he puts an order of about, I mean, I would put it higher than 20%, but 20% that we're living in a simulated reality. I'd, I'd put it, I'd put it higher to closer to 90. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do, right. I do honestly, I do honestly believe that we are, this is our dream state that we're in now. Have you ever seen the film Inception? Yes, yes. Dreams within dreams within dreams yes. within dreams. It often makes me wonder whether when we do go back to this great and we're experiencing sort of that reality, thinking, oh, you know, I'm back into my pure state, whether we'll suddenly start thinking, actually, hang on, is this a dream as well? How far, how far up does it go? Oh, Absolutely. There's a uh, quote I may have told you before, but there's a guy, I think his name is, it's a, it's a Chinese, ancient Chinese philosopher, I can't remember his name, but he's sp spoken of by Lao Tse, the guy that wrote the Tao Te Ching, the Taoist uh, yeah. philosophy, and he said that something like he dreamt he was a butterfly, and he's floating around hither and thither, and then he wakes up and he says, uh, for a second, he doesn't he doesn't remember if he was a butterfly dreaming he was a man or a man dreaming he was a butterfly. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So I listened, Daniel. We got 15 more minutes, so I want to ask. I want to okay. loop back to ma the Magi thing that we started uh, on in the beginning. Mm. So I want to yeah. I want to I'll tee this up for you to say that I know we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but for the people listening who maybe haven't heard those episodes, when I bring up Zoroastrianism. Um, the reason I bring it up is because there's a lot of Judeo-Christianity that borrows from Zoroastrianism, and Zoroastrianism is a more ancient religion than Christianity and Judaism. Mm. Yeah. And there's some argument. There's some arguments about that because there's oral traditions and how far do they go back? It's hard to know. But the thing, and and of course the Jews were captive in Babylon and in the in the Persian Empire, which subsumed Babylon. This was the religion of the empire, Zoroastrianism. Um, this, the prophet Zoroaster or Zarathustra was, in my opinion, the first monotheist. He was the first prophet who said, you know what, there's really only one God. And the things that Christianity and Judaism get from that religion are heaven and hell, 
because they didn't exist in Judaism. Judaism believed in the land of the dead, Sheol, which is like Hades, the land of the dead. And, and Zoroastrianism said, oh, no, there's a, there's a paradise and there's a hell. They also mm -hmm. said that there is an end of time where the forces of good and evil are going to have a final battle and good will finally triumph over evil. That's Armageddon, right? That's the book of Revelation yep. right there. Yep. They, they also said that there's going to be a bodily resurrection, right? That's a very Christian doctrine. Interesting. And that comes mm. from Zoroastrianism, that the bodies will be, will be resurrected, Okay. They also believe in this dynamic where good and evil are constantly fighting each other, and we, we see that in Judaism and Christianity as well. They, they see the God as basically dualistic. There's a God of good and a God of evil, and it's not exactly that way because the God of good and evil are really just one God, but they've been, they've been divided. And so you have the, God, the, uh, the Yahweh and Satan split into something, something like that, but they call it Ahura Mazda, the God, and Ahriman, mm -hmm. which is like the devil. Where did, uh, where did Zoroastrianism uh, originate um, in terms of location? Am I guessing it's probably somewhere near Babylon? It was in Iran, so ancient, ancient Iran. Yeah. And uh, so this was this wouldn't be Iraq, but Iran. These were Persian people. These were Indo-European people. The same yeah. people that. Yeah. Yeah. That substantiates yeah. this idea that the, the Judaistic, uh, you know, the Bible, the, the, the Torah, the Old Testament and the Jewish religion as as it sort of became originated from the Persian times, not before. Yes, I think this. Yeah. I think this is evidence exactly. I think this is evidence mm -hmm. for your. You've said that before, that yeah. that the Jews were required to come up with their own tradition while they were captive in Babylon. During That's that it. time, during that time, the empire was Zoroastrian. Okay, so you can see yeah. <laughs> you can see the influence. Now, the reason I tee all this up for you is because I have always found all of these similarities interesting, and mm -hmm. I never I never read the Zoroastrian holy books, but I decided to. So I read, I read the creation story and I did a podcast on it and I learned a couple things that I thought were really interesting. So I want to run these by you. Mm, please. Yeah. So in the Zoroastrian creation story, and now their Bible is called the Avesta or the Zen Avesta. And it wasn't actually written down until after the time of Jesus, even though Zoroaster himself goes back 2000 years before Jesus, their holy books weren't written down until mm -hmm. like, I think it was like 100 or 200 AD. So there's some interesting like questions as to who influenced who. And I don't want to make a, any statements mm -hmm. about that. Around about the time that the Gospels may have been being written. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh, by the way, the Zoroastrians have a character in their, in their holy book. And he's, a, he's the, the Messiah character. He's called the Shawashant. And the Shawashant is the man who's going to be born that will that will hearken in the end of days. So he's the messianic figure. He's basically Jesus in the, in the story. And um, the creation story is interesting because what happens is in the beginning, there's there's different translations of this. The, the later translations basically says there's God that's a unity and they call him. Zervan, but they also call him Ahura Mazda. Um, but Zervan is, imagine he's this union of opposites. He's the god of good and the god of evil together. He's one thing. Mm 
And this gets split into two. And the space between Ahura Mazda, the good god, and Ariman, the bad god, the evil god, the space between them is where the earth is formed, right? That's the cosmos, the space between good and evil, okay? And they can't, they can't interact with each other. Even though the, the god of uh, evil wants nothing but to destroy the light that he sees across the way, right? He wants nothing but to destroy God, and he can't get to him. But when God decides to create the cosmos, it forms in between them. And Ariman goes into the earth and tries to destroy what God has created. And this is what this is where the battle between good and evil happens. It's when God creates the cosmos, evil enters in, into it, and that's where then good and evil are 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 having their their conflict. And the story has this interesting twist where it says that. Um, God, God creates all these angels. They're called. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna forget the phrase. Uh, Ameshaspentas, something like that. They're like archangels. So God creates angels, and while He's doing that, the devil creates demons, and they, he, they're doing that to like create their armies that are gonna do battle with each other. And um, when they finally, when the evil forces finally go into the earth. It's sort of like a trap. It, it's it's painted up like once the once the evil forces go into the cosmos, they can they can't escape. So these archangels kind of create a barrier around the earth where the where the demons and, and Satan can't he can't escape. <laughs> with me a moment. Oh, that's all right. Sorry, somebody's just knocked the door. No worries. Bear with me two seconds. Oh, here we go. You're all right. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're okay. Sorry, Bella. That's all right. So, and the book actually says that when the when Ariman comes into the earth, it says he realizes that he's confronting glory greater than himself and he tries to flee but he can't because the because the archangels have have trapped the evil in the earth and this is the idea because the evil can't escape they're basically captive captives on earth while human beings and all the creation of god are generation after generation chipping away at evil so we're constantly doing battle with the evil that can't escape so the mm -hmm. earth the earth is a prison for for satan and the demons and our job is like the warriors of god constantly constantly chipping away at it until the end times when we triumph over it and i thought that was an interesting twist it's familiar right. it's familiar mm. but it's different you know as you're saying that, so go back to the idea that God, source, whatever, is an unmanifested potentiality of all things. Yes. Uh, just a, a blob of everything, if you will. Yes. When that, when that manifests, it, it's inevitable. Because we call evil, it's going to contain black and white, this and that, opposite. Yeah. 
exists as the universe. And that's where you see the good and evil within the yes. universe. When it when it's just God unmanifest, it's neither good nor evil. Exactly. It's nothing. It's, exactly. It's nothing and everything. So when he manifests, yes. the good and evil is is there within the manifestation itself. And then you're right. It would then become a a decision of do we do we do this or do we do that? You know. And I think that's probably what's been playing out through humanity. You know, each of us kind of as illusory as, as our one as our as our uniqueness is, we've all got our own kind of moral compass, haven't we? That we decide, you've said before, we decide through our choices what we what we feel is good and evil. But we've also got a consensus as a as a society what is good and evil. And you're right, that's what we're chipping away at. I mean, I personally, I personally think the world we live in now, as much as some religious people say, oh, it's all going tits up and downhill and all the rest of it, I think the world we live in now is probably more balanced in many ways than it was in the past. Right. You know, in, insofar as maybe there's, there's still lots of bad things that happen in the world, but the, the general consensus is that, you know, murder and rape and child abuse and war and... Um, these things are not good. These these are things that we we want to avoid if at all possible. Sure. Whereas you go back far enough, you know, slavery and genocide, and it was just the order of the day, wasn't it? Right. Every everybody had a war with everybody else because that's just how life was. Here here's another interesting, like way of the way of thinking about this when the forces of good finally triumph over the forces of evil, mm. what, that what that means is you don't have evil anymore. And what that means mm. is, what that means is you have a unity again, right? Yes. And, th and that may, <laughs> that may well be the end of all things because, you know, from a Hindu, Hindu perspective, we think of what we call yugas, which are these kind of cycles where it manifests and they, they, the, the, the various different yugas, each yuga is actually, um, well, they say that it's, it's worse than the previous one. Mm. And then it reaches a point where everything just collapses back in on itself and then it starts again. Mm. Um, but I suppose, you know, that's looking at a very linear point of view, isn't it? I suppose you could equally say that the start of each yuga is wonderful and that could be actually the end of the previous yuga so right and and jesus said didn't he that the 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 uh, good would always conquer the evil so. right a couple more things real quick because we're running out of time <laughs> there's there's two stories of the creation of human beings in the zoroastrian okay. um holy books and i found it to be very interesting because there's two stories of creation in, of man in the Bible, right? One in which human beings are created from, from clay, from the earth, and another where Eve is created from Adam's rib. If you remember, there's two mm -hmm. stories about the creation of man, and there's, not, there's nothing to reconcile why two stories. But in the Zoroastrian story, the first man is named – his name is Geomard, and, and Geomard means mortal life. That's what it means. So – so Geomard is created, the first man, and when he dies, his seed becomes 
uh, Masha and Mashiana, and that's that's Adam and Eve, right? Masha and Mashiana are are the first are the, are they're the human beings that become the lineage of the of the rest of humanity. So Protonite. first you have right, first you have Geomard, then you have the Adam and Eve characters, and I thought that was pretty interesting because I wonder if mm. the reason is you Gail have Ma is Geomard Yahweh. <laughs> That's another interesting idea. And another another interesting thing is that God tells Mashia and Mashiana, he basically gives them their Ten Commandments, but it's simpler than that. He says, He says, Go out and live your life and think good thoughts, do good deeds, uh, hmm. and speak and speak good words. That's what he tells them to do. Those are the three. Oh, he says, he says. Think good thoughts, speak good words, do good deeds, and don't worship any demons. That's what he tells them to do. Now, what happens is Masha, which is the Adam figure, he actually gets convinced by one of the demons to offer, make an offering to him. So it's Adam and not Eve who's responsible for the fall. I wonder if that's some revisionist history. If like the Jews were like, it's got to be, hasn't it? Because within the Jewish, um, I don't know about how Judaism is now, but certainly in ancient Judaism, the woman was always subject, wasn't she? And even within Christianity, you know, if you read the words of Paul, the woman is always the, uh, the underdog. Right. Yeah. There's no real equality there, is there? No, that's fascinating though. That 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 story probably before it was in print, it was it was knocking around in Persian times, mm -hmm. and the Jews have just taken that, lifted it, revised it, like you say, and then of course it carries over to Christianity, doesn't it? You know, Jesus comes along and says, "Let's get rid of all this," and then the Apostle Paul, who was a a, a really fanatical Jew, said, "No, let's <laughs> let's." Let's take the uh, the old Jewish story and rewrite it again. Right. When will we learn? <laughs> so I, 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 I'm I'm absolutely certain if religion was abolished completely, if we did away with religion, you give it a couple of hundred years and it would be back again. Oh yes, hands down, hundred percent. Yes, yes, I agree. Absolutely. I don't know whether that's a. A happy note to end on or a, or a frightening <laughs> one to end on, but we're yeah. at, we're at two hours, Daniel. I really awesome. appreciate you making the time this morning to, to talk to me. Hopefully we can do it uh, many times in the future. If you Looking don't mind, uh, if you don't mind holding with me, I'll play the, the exit music here and um, I'll keep the audience posted on when I am God is published. I do want to be one of the first people to, to get a copy of that. Okay, mate. Lovely chatting yeah. to you. Yep, here we go. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.